0: This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas, a community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org UT or find us on Instagram at Texas Okay, Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, My name is Jordan. If I've never met you before, I would love to meet you. My number's on the back. Please text me. I would love to get lunch or coffee with you. Um, If this is your first time to RUF, or even if it's your 50th time, I want to tell you what RUF is. So REF is a community of students. We're trying to learn how to love God. and We're trying to learn how to love our neighbors because what we believe is that Jesus is the embodiment of love. MC, can I help you? Um, And so each and every week, here's what we do. Uh, We gather in this room for a large group on Wednesday nights, and we gather in small groups throughout the week, and we gather one-on-one for lunch and coffee in order to first remind one another of God's love for us and then to rest in his love. And so what I want you to do tonight is rest. I want you to rest and breathe, and I want you to inhale and then exhale God's love for you. And if you've been with us this semester, you'll remember that each and every week we're asking this question together. And the question is, who is Christ for us? I mean, what are all the things that Christ is for us in the Gospels? Uh, not just, I mean, who do I sort of want Jesus to be or what version of Jesus is my favorite, but who is Jesus actually? And tonight, I want us to see that Christ is our giver. He's our giver. In order to do that, I want to look at one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, if we were able to get together, ever to get together and like, compare favorite scripture passages, which would be really fun, this would be one of my favorites. It's a wonderful passage. All right, and I want to thank my friends Matt Patrick as well as Greg Thompson for um, their thoughts on this passage. So, uh, some of you have gotten to meet my two year old son named Sam. Uh, Sam is a true delight. And and almost every day of uh, the last year or so, Sam and I have played this game together. And the game is called, What Do You See? And it's a very complex game in which I ask Sam, um, whether we're in the car or uh, in the front yard or outside by the creek, I ask Sam, what do you see? And he tells me, he'll say, uh, car, or truck, or plane, or Bird or tree or rock or water. It sounds like that water. And and the point is, I mean two children like Sam, and this was all of us one at one time, two children, everything in the world is amazing. Like no matter how small it is, everything is amazing. I mean everything in the world is just a gift and God is the giver. And yet, as we get older and as we kind of move through life, I mean, we begin to see God not as a giver, but as a taker. I mean, life begins to happen to us. Um, Maybe someone that we love is taken away from us. Um, We begin to lose trust in God. Uh, We begin to have doubts. We begin to suffer disappointments. We begin to think that God is somehow holding out on us and that he doesn't want good things for us. And we think, uh, if I were to really give myself to God, uh, it would make my life worse. That God would somehow take away my freedom, or he would take away my independence, or he would take away my fun, and my life would become more boring in some way. We think of God as a taker. And a few weeks ago, we talked about The Office, and we talked about Toby Flinderson. So we're going to talk about Toby again, okay? If you've ever uh, watched The Office, you'll remember Toby. And Toby views God fundamentally as a taker. Why is that? Um, because, you know, bad things are always happening to Toby. I mean, Toby gets divorced. Toby has this sort of strained, hard relationship with his daughter. Um, Michael is constantly mean to him, calling him an evil snail, and no one in the office is taking up for him. Uh, Michael says he would rather keep Hitler and Osama bin Laden alive instead of Toby. I mean, it's awful, right? And, uh, and then you have Pam, who is th- this woman who uh, Toby has had a crush on his whole life and yet she loves Jim. And so there's this episode, if you'll remember, where Pam and Jim are baptizing their baby, Cece. And uh, everyone in the office is at the church. And, and after the baptism, everyone files out of the church, but Toby remains there. And he remains there, and he looks up at the cross, and he says to God, God, why do you always have to be so mean to me? And I mean, the Toby dynamic is funny, and yet it's this really profound moment in the office. God, why do you have to be so mean to me? And again, he views God as a taker, and many of us view God like Toby, that God is the one who takes away from us. But tonight again, I want us to see that God is a giver. And to do that, I want to look at two things. First of all, where Jesus goes, and then secondly, what Jesus gives. So where he goes and what he gives. First, where he goes. I want us to see that Jesus goes to empty places. He goes to empty places. And to see this, I want to set the stage of our passage. All right? So uh, Jesus is at a wedding, and he is with his mom. And so it's likely the wedding of a family friend. And uh, in first century weddings, as some of you may know, uh, weddings were not like weddings are today. So what are weddings like today? I mean, uh, we show up at a church and we're there about 30 minutes and, you know, hopefully not 40 minutes, like let's get out as quickly as possible. And then we go to a country club or maybe outside somewhere for the reception and we dance and we eat some food and we watch the couple cut the cake and we do some sparklers and then the couple leaves and the whole thing takes like six or seven hours, right? Well, in the first century, weddings lasted six or seven days. I mean, there were a week-long affair in which people would come out of town for an entire week. And every single day of the week, there would be music, and there would be dancing, and there would be eating, and there would be drinking. And an essential part of every first-century wedding was the wine. In fact, the Aramaic word for feast is the same word as the Aramaic word for wine. So in this day... The word for feast basically meant wine party. That's what it was. And yet the one thing that John tells us in this passage, the one thing he tells us about the wedding is that they have no wine. I mean, look at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's the only thing we learn about the wedding. I mean, we don't hear anything about the food. We don't hear anything about the dancing. We don't hear anything about the bride's dress. The only thing he tells us, no wine. Why? Because without the wine, there's no party. So um, Emily and I got married in 2016, and we had a beautiful wedding uh, at this Episcopal church in Dallas. And then afterward, the reception was at this country club nearby. And um, there was great food, and there was a great band, there was great dancing, and everyone was having a great time. But then about two and a half hours into the reception, suddenly the band's power went out. Mike, they're up there strumming, and suddenly no sound is coming out. The mics are not working. There's no electricity for the band. Everywhere else, the light's on, but just no band and no music. And everyone sort of immediately just stops dancing and kind of doesn't know what to do, right? And they're kind of like looking at us, and we're like, we don't know. Right? And, and uh, you know, our wedding coordinator is sort of freaking out. And Emily and I begin to like feel kind of responsible for this. I mean, we're sort of embarrassed, right? I mean, we've been planning this reception for six months, and so here we are two and a half hours in, and then the music just stops. And we're afraid everyone's just gonna leave and go home. And that's sort of how the groom would have felt in our passage. Because it was up to the groom in this day, it was up to the groom and his family to provide the wine. I mean, basically they have one job, bring the wine, and they fail. The wine runs out. But I want us to notice is that Jesus shows up precisely in this moment of emptiness. I mean, in this moment of profound shame for the groom, Jesus is there. Jesus shows up when the wine runs out. I mean, Jesus shows up when the party that we plan fails. Jesus shows up when we're the most ashamed. He shows up when we're the most embarrassed. He shows up when we feel like the biggest failure. He shows up when we have the most regret, when we feel the most sinful, the most stuck in our sin. I mean, that's when Jesus shows up. I mean, we think Jesus is present and shows up when we are full, but really it is when we're empty. It's not when our life is sort of working and our plans are succeeding, but it's when our life falls apart. And so I want you to think about your life for a second. And I want you to think about the times in your life when you've more or less thrown up your hands and just said, I have nothing. I mean, think about those moments. Uh, Maybe it's a big decision. Uh, You're deciding where to go to college. You're deciding between option A and option B and you just don't know, I have nothing. Or maybe there's again, some addiction or sin pattern in your life and you've tried to stop for days and months and years and you throw up your hands and I say, I have nothing. Or uh, you're in a hard class right now, right? Um, Class school just feels like too much for you. And so you say, I have nothing. Or there's some hard relationship with a friend or a boyfriend or girlfriend or parent and you're just sort of at your wit's end and you say, I have nothing. Something's happened to you. Someone's wounded you. You have some deep trauma and you can't seem to move past it. You feel stuck. I've got nothing. Some regret, something you've done that you can't go back and change. And so what do you do? You throw up your hands and you say, I've got nothing. And y'all, I really want you to know that these are the moments when God feels the most absent in your life, but they are actually the moments when he is closest to you. Like that is just true and it's what we see in our passage. I mean Jesus locks in and zooms in and moves toward empty people and empty places. I mean if you already full, Jesus doesn't waste his time with people who are already full. I mean, Jesus really doesn't waste his time with people whose life is going great, and whose plans are all succeeding and don't really need them. I mean, those people have nothing for Jesus. But if you're empty in some way, I mean, like you're really Jesus's thing. So the first thing that Jesus is inviting us to do tonight is just to honestly admit our emptiness. I mean, to look at Jesus and say, I have no wine. I mean, I have nothing. I, I don't have the joy and happiness that I would like to have. Uh, I don't feel the kind of sense of meaning or purpose that I would like to feel. Uh, I'm not as good. I haven't been as good as I would have liked to have been. My plans have failed. Honestly, admit your emptiness. But the second thing that Jesus is inviting us to do is to, again, reconsider these emptiest moments in our life. I mean, these moments when we have been the most depressed and, and disappointed and ashamed. I mean, the moments when we have felt like the biggest failure. And for some of you, that is like precisely where you are right now. And again, to reconsider these moments and look at them through a different lens, not as Jesus being far away from you in those moments, but like right there. Jesus is most near to us when the wine runs out. That's point one. But point two, what Jesus gives. What Jesus gives. And I want us to see, first of all, that Jesus in this passage gives us joy, He gives us joy. And to see this and understand this, we need to talk more about wine. So uh, if you read through the Bible, you'll notice that wine shows up a lot. And and, in the Bible, wine is always more than just wine. I mean, wine is always symbolic. Wine means joy. And I do want to say, like, really briefly that uh, I know for some of you, alcohol isn't actually a joyful thing at all, okay? Uh, Someone in your life... Uh, a family member, maybe your own life has been like wrecked and destroyed by alcohol. So I, I just want to name that. And, but yet what we in Jesus, Jesus and God really honors that. Okay. But in the Bible, uh, wine is symbolic of joy. And we see this, for example, in Psalm 104, it's this beautiful Psalm about God's creation and all the gifts that God has given to the world. And so it says, God, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man. So it says that God gives wine to gladden us and to make us happy and to give us joy. And so in our passage, when Mary turns to Jesus and says they have no wine, what she is saying is they have no joy. I mean, their joy and their life and their happiness and their pleasure has run out. And I mean, I have to think that we feel this way today, right? Um, In 2019, this thing called the World Happiness Report, uh, that reports on the levels of the world's happiness, said that everyone is getting less happy and it's happening really fast. Okay, uh, they, they reported that negative feelings, including worry and sadness and anger are on the rise and are up by 27% from the years 2010 to 2018. So in just nine years, people report being 27% less happy. That's like way less happy. And uh, there are many reasons for this, but I just wanna do a really quick sidebar on social media. Okay, let's do a really quick sidebar on social media. I mean, the other day, the Wall Street Journal put out an article saying, Facebook, which owns Instagram, knows that Instagram is toxic for teenage girls, but they don't care. In fact, Instagram is just doubling down, and they're now looking to create Instagram for children, for people younger than 13. They're trying to create Instagram for Sam, okay? They don't care. How do we know? Well, in an internal meeting a couple of years ago, Instagram reported to their own employees the following statistics, okay? First, teens who struggle with mental health say Instagram only makes it worse. Second, 20% of teens say Instagram makes them feel worse about their self in general. Third, 40% of Instagram users, guy and girl, say the app makes them feel unattractive. And, like, guys, it's not just girls, okay, it's us too. Forty percent of guys also said that they struggle with comparison on Instagram. And finally, Instagram is incredibly addicting. People are reporting they want to log off. They know it makes them less happy, but they can't do it. And look, okay, caveat, caveat, I'm on Instagram, REF has Instagram, you can use Instagram well, I'm not anti-Instagram, I'm just saying, if you don't think Instagram is making you less joyful, you just need to know that Instagram knows that Instagram is making you less joyful, okay? And so there are all these things in our life that are robbing us of our joy, and they're robbing us of our peace and our contentment, and we're more anxious, and we're more depressed, and we're more stressed than we've ever been. And so the wine has run out for us. But then Jesus comes to us and he restores wine to the world. He comes to restore our joy. That's the first gift we see him giving. And yet many of us have been taught to think of God, um, I mean, not as someone who gives joy to us, but actually as someone who takes it away, that he's this killjoy. And, and, and as a result, um, if you're here and you don't consider yourself religious or a Christian, it might just be, again, because you think of God as a killjoy that is somehow going to make your life worse. Or even Christians think that God's honestly a killjoy. And so we become Christians, and then we become like really serious people. We become really serious. We become serious about our quiet times and our actions and our sacrifices that we're making for God. We become very serious. But this is not all who God is. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who many of you know, has this book called The Screwtape Letters. And as many of you know, especially if you went to Regents, probably, um, screw Tape Letters, the idea is uh, that it's written from the perspective of the devil. And so basically it's the devil trying to get all his demons to go out and sort of tempt Christians and lead them astray. And so here is what um, basically one of these demons says about God. He says, God is a hedonist at heart, meaning he's a lover of pleasure. I mean, look out on the world. He makes no secret of it. He says in his scriptures, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures, sleeping and eating and drinking and making love and playing and praying and working. And so everything has to be twisted for us before we can actually use any of it. I mean, y'all think about the world. God made wine. He made food. I mean, he made food actually taste good. It's not just something we have to inhale for survival. But he said, I want it to taste good. I mean, God made music. He made sex. He made made all of these pleasurable things because he wants us to have joy. But second, Jesus also, we see in this passage, comes to give us abundance. I love this word, abundance. What does it mean? abundance means too much. I mean, abundance is when something is just extra. It's unnecessary. There's more than is necessary. There's more than enough to go around. And that's what we see in our passage. I mean, first of all, look how much wine Jesus makes. Six jars times 20 to 30 gallons. That means Jesus makes at minimum 120 gallons of wine and at maximum 180. So, okay, let's just split the middle and call it 150 gallons of wine. How much wine is that? It's the equivalent of 750 bottles or 3,500 glasses. It's more than anyone in any party can drink. And some of you are like, well, you haven't been to my parties. Okay, but it was, it was more than uh, these people could drink. Okay, um, why does Jesus do it? Why does he make so much wine? Well, I mean, it's not to condone drunkenness, right? RUF, the Bible, does not condone drunkenness. Let's be very clear. But why does Jesus do it? It's something way bigger than that. I mean, Jesus, by making so much wine, is showing us why he's come into the world. He has come to bring more joy and more life than we will ever need. Second, look at how Jesus fills the jars. So again, we see the abundance here. I mean, look at verse six. Six stone water jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I mean, again, I love this. And they filled them up to the brim. Because, y'all, this is a picture of what Jesus does. He just fills us up to the brim. It's a picture, again, of the fullness and the abundance Jesus offers. Fill them up. And they filled them up to the brim. But third, we see the abundance and the fact that Jesus makes wine and not water. Think about this. He makes wine and not water. So go back to verse 6. Uh, John goes out of his way to tell us about these water jars, that they were water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And this is not an accidental detail that John just kind of drops in here for us. I mean, here's why John goes out of his way to tell us this. Because in the Old Testament, God's people were constantly washing themselves and purifying themselves and offering sacrifices before God so that they could be clean, so that their sins might be forgiven. And so what John is doing here is he is showing us that only Jesus can actually make us clean. He is, showing, he is basically saying to us, no more water. No more purifying yourself, no more washing yourself, no more sacrifices, no more trying to clean yourself. Why? Because Jesus is here, and only Jesus can wash you. Jesus is replacing the water with wine. He's replacing the old covenant with a new covenant. But think about wine versus water for a second. I mean, water is great. Water gives life. You have to have water. It's necessary for survival. Wine is completely unnecessary. It's completely extra. We don't need it for survival, but it's better. Wine is just better than water. And so ask yourself, do I want to live in the world of water or in the world of wine? Do I want to live in a world where I have to clean myself up all the time? Or do I want to live in the world where I just wash myself in Jesus' wine and I just wash myself in Jesus' blood and that's it? Fully forgiven, fully clean for the rest of time. So Jesus comes to bring us joy and abundance, and he also comes to bring us hope. Because what I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't just make wine, I mean, he actually makes really good wine. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. I mean, where the master of the feast tastes the wine that Jesus makes, and he can't believe what he tastes. I mean, he says, he calls over the groom and he says, Everyone at weddings serves the best wine first. And when everyone is drunken freely, then they serve the cheap wine. So he's basically saying uh, the idea is good wine first, cheap wine second. People have a glass, they're feeling fine, like they don't care what the wine tastes like after that, all right? But he's saying with Jesus, it's precisely the opposite. With Jesus, whatever comes before Jesus pales in comparison to that which comes after. Jesus, we see, always saves the best for last. He always saves the best for last. And so this should fill us with hope. Why? Because what this means is that, friends, if you are a Christian, your best days are always ahead of you. Your best days are always ahead of you. Because what is hope for the Christian? When we, when we use the word hope, what we mean is sort of wishful thinking. I hope that something will happen. I wish that something will happen. But for the Christian, hope is way different than that. Hope is this deep set certainty you have that everything will turn out okay. Again, that because of Jesus and what he has done for you, and the fact that one day you will see him face to face and be safe in his arms forever, you're gonna be okay. And so you can hope that your best days are ahead of you. And uh, some of you, I, I think, need to hear this tonight. Um, because, like, right now, I mean, again, you're looking at your life, and there are things about your life that you don't love. I mean, there are things about your life that you would like to change. Maybe you'd like to change your friend group, maybe you'd like to change your roommate. Maybe you'd like to change uh, the sorority you got a bid from, or the fraternity that you got a bid from, and you wish it had been something different. You wish you could change sort of your major. You wish you could could change the trajectory of your life. You wish you could change your grades. And in these moments of sort of disappointment, when we wish our life was better, I mean, it's really tempting to do a couple of things. I mean, the first thing it's really tempting to do is to just despair, to kind of throw our hands up and think that it's always going to be this way. This is never going to end. But, but the second temptation is to begin to look backwards. And, and many of us do this when we go to college. We, we look, we, we, we struggle in college, we have disappointments, we have setbacks, and we begin to look back. We begin to look back to some great time in our life with nostalgia, in high school maybe, where we had our high school friends, or we had that girlfriend or that boyfriend, and this other time back then when we were happy. And so then we try to manipulate our current circumstances to make them more, look more like back then. And so we look back. But y'all, Jesus invites us always to look forward. He says, don't look back, look forward. Trusting that I have good things in store for you, that I'm gonna take away everything sad and disappointing in your life, and that your best days really are ahead of you. Everything in this world... Serves the best wine first, and then it gets worse and worse over time. But with Jesus, it's different. Anything that comes before Jesus is never as good as that which comes after Him. So we can hope. So, um, like I said earlier, uh, two and a half hours into Emily and I's wedding reception, the the power went out. Right, and and the band just stopped playing, and the music stopped playing, and everyone's looking at us, and they're like, "What do we do?" And like, we don't know. The wedding coordinator's freaking out. And so, basically, we just had to wait. And, uh, but during that time, you know, while everyone was waiting, uh, basically, here's what my brides, our bridesmaids, and our groomsmen did. Uh, they went back out, and they uh, got more food, and I'll let you decide if they also got more wine. And, uh, you know, this probably 20 or 30-minute interval passed, and eventually the music just came back on. And we're like, oh, thank God, right? Um, the music comes back on, and so everyone, like, comes back to the dance floor and you know all our bridesmaids and groomsmen and friends and family are all dancing and the party was somehow better and more lively for the fact that the music had gone out because there had been that space and this sort of moment where it looked like everything was over and then everything was back again it was somehow better it was somehow happier um and y'all that's what life is like with jesus i mean there are these times that feel really empty, and we don't know what he's doing. We don't know why he's taking things away from us. We don't know why he's not choosing to give us things that we, like we think would be good for us. But looking back, we actually kind of are able to see what he's doing. And again, we know that no matter what happens, he saves the best for last. Okay, so tonight we've seen that Jesus is a giver and he's not a taker. Uh, he shows up when the wine runs out. When the party that we plan fails in our moments of emptiness and shame and regret and disappointment. And then we've seen that he's a giver. He's not a taker. He's a giver. And he gives us joy and he gives us abundance and he gives us hope. But we've yet to say how Jesus is actually able to make these things happen. Here's how he does it. It's hidden in our passage. It's this little word where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And in John, Jesus' hour is, is the worst hour of his life. It is the moment of sorrow in which he goes to the cross and dies. And so in this moment of joy and of dancing and celebration, Jesus is not able to escape the fact that his hour of sorrow is coming and that one day he is going to have to die. But here's what's amazing. Because Jesus is willing to experience sorrow, even in the midst of joy, you and I can experience joy even in the midst of sorrow. He said, my sorrow for your joy, I will go to the cross so that you can go to the party. I mean, all of us want the party, right? We all want the party, but the only way to the party is through the cross, in which God the Father actually takes. It's the one time he ever takes. He takes away life and joy and happiness and everything from Jesus so that he can give us all of it. That's how he does it. All right, let's close. So how do you know if this passage, John 2, wedding at Cana, God is giver, how do you know when these things are actually sinking into your bones? One way you'll know is when you can begin to laugh. Okay? Okay. When you can mean to laugh. Uh, so some of you know that uh, I'm an anxious person. I struggle with anxiety. I also struggle with OCD. I have all my life. And uh, when you're anxious, it's really hard to laugh. But when you laugh, it's really hard to be anxious. And uh, I wish I laughed more, but there's one time in my life each and every year when I know I'm going to laugh. And that is when I go on this retreat with uh, nine of my best friends who are all pastors. And some of you are like, that doesn't sound fun. A retreat with 10 other pastors, like that sounds terrible. But it's actually really fun. It's actually the most fun weekend of my life. Because what we do here, I mean, you might think we just are real serious and we pray a lot. um, But it's actually the opposite. I mean, we really just laugh a lot and we play and we make meals together. And we just enjoy life and we enjoy one another's company. And when I think about joy, when I think about laughter, I have this image engraved in my mind. And there's one of my friends who is an REF minister, I won't say who, um, who, uh, you know, may or may not have developed a little bit of a gut sort of over his life uh, as he now kind of ages. And there was one day when we um, all had our shirts off because we were doing this slip and slide. All right. And we're like grown men. We're like anywhere from 32 to 40. And we decided we were going to do this slip and slide. And I have this image of my friend who has a little bit of a gut sliding head first on his belly through the soapy water down the slip and slide. And one of my friends sort of turning to me and just being like, he looked like a little child in that moment. And he totally did. We had this moment where we're like, we're being like children. Uh, but again, it's engraved in my mind is this beautiful John 2 wedding at Cana, God is a moment in which sort of all the sadness and anxiety of life sort of just gives away, and you just see the joy of it, and you just laugh. And so that's what Jesus is inviting us into tonight. He's a giver. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful world you've made, uh, and we thank you that Jesus came into the world to restore all the good things about this world to us. Um, Lord, I do ask for myself, uh, for my friends, and for the community of RUF, that we more and more would feel your joy, that we would be able to laugh and that our joy and our laughter would actually be contagious and that uh, our neighbors and our friends would ask where it comes from and want to find out. We praise things in your son's name. Amen.